Bettina from Bettina's Kitchen. I'm a plant-based chef and cookbook author. And I'm Nikki from Rebel Recipes, a plant-based food blogger and cookbook author. And this is our podcast, What the Focaccia, kindly brought to you by the organic retailer Abel & Cole, who are all about being sustainably minded. And you can find out lots more on their website, abelandcole.co.uk. And they have kindly offered you, our podcast listeners, a brilliant offer. Which is £10 of your first three shops, over £30. All the T's and C's are on their website as well, abelandcole.co.uk. So with us today is Chantelle Nicholson, who is Hi. amazing. So I first heard about Chantelle when I was doing my first book, Happy Food, and everybody kept saying, oh my God, you need to meet Chantelle. She's an amazing chef, amazing woman, and I can't agree more. And thank you so much for being here. You've got quite an interesting background. You've got a twang. I have a twang. <laughs> New Zealand twang. twang. <laughs> I have a New Zealand twang. So very lucky to have grown up in such an amazingly beautiful country. And I was surrounded by plants. Growing up, my dad was a horticulture teacher, so we had lots of things growing in the garden at all times. We'd pop out for dinner, pick some salad leaves, mm. pull a carrot up, snip off some lemongrass, always had fresh herbs around, citrus over the colder months. So really lucky to be kind of surrounded by all of that and also understand where food came from. I actually came into the food world in a slightly different way. Mm. I knew I was going to university. I knew which university I wanted to go to, which was in the opposite end of the country. And thought I'd do law and commerce because they were two quite broad things. And eventually, hopefully, by the end of the five years of studying, I would know what I wanted to do. Racking up a rather large student loan, so I needed a job. So I thought, well, what do I? What else is there? I'm doing something that's very kind of academically focused. So I want something that's not. So mm. I approached. One of my favourite cafes in Dunedin, where I was studying, and as fate would have it, they were looking for somebody. I then got a job in a restaurant over my summer holidays. Mm. Absolutely loved that. Kind of was a bit like a sponge. And did you finish your law degree? I did. I right. finished. I finished the degrees and kept cooking. Part way through. <laughs> part way through that, this kind of opportunity came about in a magazine um, called Cuisine Magazine, which is a really cool foodie magazine from New Zealand. And this little ad kind of popped out at me that said chef search. And it was a competition um, actually only happened once outside of the UK. Mm. So it was the Ramsey Scholarship and didn't win, but was kind of glad that it it was over. Um, And we had a kind of canopy reception that evening at the British High Commissioner's House in New Zealand. And one of the judges of the competition was also a fellow Kiwi, but he was the head chef at the Savoy Grill over here. His name was Josh Emmett. And we, he came to talk to me at this function and offered me a job at the That's Savoy Grill That's amazing. So London. you didn't win. I didn't but, win, but, but you, I, you, you kind of did. You kind of won. I, I was just going to say that, yeah. In a way. And so I thought about it for all of one second. Jumped on a plane. And kind of didn't really contemplate what I was getting myself into. It's the best way. Jumping. It is. And I'm so glad I did that now because actually kind of didn't even really fathom what I was doing. Again, and that's sometimes better, isn't it? Totally. Totally. And I went in very yeah. naively. Not to, I remember my first day. Didn't sleep hardly at all the night before. I was so nervous. Got there in the morning. Completely kind of inappropriate footwear and everything. I had little pigtails because I had short hair. 
and just (laughs) (laughs) thing right now is quite hilarious and I'm really glad for that level of naivety that I had Mm. because I don't think I probably would have done it if I had a bit more of an understanding of what I was getting myself into. I mean, how was it initially? I was like a sponge. I just wanted to kind of, the time would go so quickly and I do remember a certain instance where I was just standing in the walk-in fridge, no one else was there. I was thinking, am I really in London and this little girl working as a chef, I was like, I can't be. This is this is really bizarre. Um, but, yeah, I guess that was 15 years ago. Do you well. still have the same feeling when you're in a kitchen now of, excitement? I guess, yeah, excitement, curiosity? What's I think your... definitely the curiosity part. And I think that's what I first, when I first came to London, the plethora of things like just produce and ingredients and things that you could get here that you couldn't get in New Zealand was like, wow, this is amazing. One of the first ones I remember was um, a carton of egg yolks. I was like, what? You don't (laughs) have to stand there and crack all those eggs. You just pour it out. That is insane. And yeah, I think in terms of, I still get that adrenaline rush from doing service. Um, what So what do you love about that? Is it cooking? Is it feeding people? Is it people enjoying your food? What? It's the whole thing. I think as a chef, sometimes you're quite removed from the guest, if that makes sense, in an odd way. Yeah. Because you don't actually have that interaction with them. And as a chef, sometimes you don't want that interaction mm. with them. And sometimes that's why you go into that industry, yeah. I think, because you like to be behind the scenes. Um, I like to problem solve. I think that's probably a bit of it. So I like to mm. find ways of doing things mm-hmm. that make things better or easier or simpler or more straightforward. Yeah, I think in terms of now, having kind of gone through that journey and not being what I was doing 15 years ago in terms of coming in, being on a section, mm. having to do mm. this, this and this, now it's the overall thing, which sometimes I feel I wish I could just go back to those days where that's, I just had to do my mise en place list, my prep list yeah, and then do yeah. service and that was it. Um, but also on the flip side, I now have the yeah ability to influence things, which I think is also a benefit and something that I also see now a bit of as as a responsibility in terms of as a chef. How can I also play my part in bettering the food system and and how we do it? And I think as chefs, we have the, we're kind of that middle person in between the consumers and the producers and it's, we can kind of influence both of them in some respects. So it's also, I feel I have a slight duty to do that and to look at the best way of sourcing things and then the best way of feeding people as well. So you've got um, so you've got planted, which is an amazing book that you've written. You work at Treadwells. You opened up the Gilbert Scott, mm-hmm. and then you've got that period, time period of fifteen years that you've been living in London. Tell us a little bit about that middle bit of the Savoy, and then where you, where where you, where you've ended up now. So from the Savoy, I went over to work with Marcus Waring at Petrus, uh, which was quite a different kitchen in some respects and throughout that process got more involved in the operational side of things also writing so um supporting with marcus's cookbooks and then obviously the gilbert scott was something that was a bit more of an operational Mm. role so Mm. i learned everything about opening a restaurant and running a restaurant from it to maintenance to pr to reservations so that was kind of a very, very quick, steep, full-on learning curve. But it was something that now I feel gives me a kind of 360 view of, of what happens in a yeah. restaurant. For me, eating out should be really easy 
and enjoyable. You shouldn't have to feel like you're the odd one out if you have to ask questions about allergens or obviously mm. certain dietary restrictions or preferences. So I included a lot of plant-based food on the menu at the time and then just really enjoyed the challenge of it. But then when I went to look for a resource as a chef, I didn't, I couldn't really find one that was kind of, I guess, the same approach that chefs have with plants that they had with meat and fish. So I thought, well, actually, maybe I should write one. Mm. So that's kind of how Planted came about and then also led me into looking at, I'm part of the Chef's Manifesto, which is a framework which talks about how as chefs we can be more, we'll work in a more sustainable food system. So that kind of has also, I think probably from my background from growing up in New Zealand where everything is very, you know, rather idyllic in some senses, I think that it's worth championing those practices and processes that have enabled it to be that way. So that's also part of what I do now. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> you also there's also an emphasis on waste not and sustainability, isn't there? And Usually. organic produce. Yeah, which so for we're me both yeah. very big fans yeah. of. I think interestingly as a chef, you're always taught not to waste anything. And I think as chefs we're very good at that and also to run a restaurant you have to obviously watch all of your costs. So I think mm. as chefs we are very good at that. I think what I'm working on now is something that actually can teach people at home what to do mm. with the things that they quite often throw in the bin, which I think the top five are potatoes, milk, bananas, bagged salad and bread. Yeah. So it's kind of, yeah, looking at ways as to how we can, I guess, implore people just to think a bit more consciously about what they're doing and what they're wasting and also that they can turn it into delicious things to eat and that's so helpful because i'm sure on a you know an everyday level it must be gutting for people throwing all this food away absolutely so and, and i certainly feel there's there's lots of just easy ways that you can incorporate it into other things and you just Definitely. have to be a little bit more creative and just think about it slightly differently yeah and i think it's also that sense of every little bit does help sometimes yep. you kind of think oh well is it really worth keeping that banana and no, i'll just throw it in the bin yeah but actually it is worth doing that and also there's ways of making your life easier with that. So if you've got one banana in your fruit bowl that's going off, just put it in the freezer. And then when you've got yeah, three of them definitely. in the freezer, you peel can it first something. Though. Peel it first, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. It's a bit hard to peel it first with it. And then you can make something delicious with it. Yeah, definitely. Because they, they end up being quite a lot of lonely bananas. They do. Uh, and I guess that's where micro, micro actions yeah, come into I think action. So. And the more it becomes habits. Yeah, exactly. Thing, doesn't it? And I think... You know, with things like bananas, they taste so much better in cooking when they're literally about to yeah. fall out with of their black. skin. Yeah, exactly. Very, very dark and gnarly There's, and gorgeous. Their flavour and their yeah. sweetness is just yeah. so much more intense. Mm. So you mentioned Planted, which is your book. Tell us more about your food. My food, I think my ethos with food is, first of all, that it is delicious because otherwise it is very not really delicious. Mm. We've both I'm still obsessed with the um, peanut butter dessert they have. Oh, the peanut that's butter so good. Just or the soft the book, serve ice cream mm-hmm. or the no, pea raviolis. <gasps> raving about that for so long. Oh my gosh. I haven't tried that. Very, very sad. Sorry, we've taken over. Go on. Yeah. No, <laughs> let's try them next year because peas are, peas are gone now. But I think yeah. that also brings up a point of seasonality, which is, so I guess the way I work with food is um, seasonal. Obviously trying to, looking at biodiversity as well, because we, I think it's it's a ridiculous amount of crops that we actually eat as a population versus what we could be eating. And we obviously risk losing a bit of that 
uh, biodiversity in our food system. And so seasonality, championing small producers, also uh, food, certain even cuts of meat or fish that are underused. Yes. And then also looking at ways of almost going back to the roots of what my auntie used to do in a way of preserving. Mm. So it's making chutneys, it's pickling. Going back to preserving basics. Fruit. It's going back to basics yeah. and in a way looking at at the why yeah. as well as the what. I think that's really important as well. And things like sourdough, for example, is mm. two, two or three ingredients. It's salt, water three. and flour. Exactly. So things like that, I think those are definitely coming back into focus, aren't they? I think so. And... Just looking at, you know, even looking around this table with all these delicious things here, there's things that also potentially, you know, even those tiny apples, which can all be used, but I think a sense of appreciating produce for what it is and the fact that a tiny apple can be delicious and if a supermarket can't sell it, well, they should be selling it because yeah, definitely. something can always be done with it. And I think that is, we're lucky enough to be, to have all this food that just comes from mother nature and sometimes i don't think we appreciate at all but it's just but again it just is having the the knowledge and the skills to make something like a really humble ingredient and just maximize the flavor and that's what we love doing isn't it just Mm. you know making using vegetables the hero but then Mm, just making them really really delicious and they sometimes get a bit of a tough rep i think and they're kind of put in the not as cool or not as delicious basket which i think with a little bit more you know, edu- as you say, experience, yeah. time, understanding of it, it can be just as delicious. So I have a question for you. Now, I think that you made your um, your career sound like it was, you know, a breeze and all went completely smoothly and easy, which which it may, may be, may not be. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, as a top chef in a sort of quite notoriously male-dominated environment, the, the kitchen and, 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 uh, and restaurants, how have you personally found that? I'm very lucky that I've worked with people that have that hasn't been an issue. And I think my two, I guess, kind of mentors, which were Josh and Marcus, both had a real appreciation for what a female can bring into a kitchen environment. And so I don't have any of those kind of real horror stories mm. in some respects, which I feel really lucky to have. And I feel that the industry has changed a huge amount in the last 15 years that I've been in London as well. And for the better. And I think that actually, whilst there are some instances where kind of the outside people will look for the chef in the kitchen and kind of look past the female, Mm. um, which has happened before. But I think also, in some senses, it's about believing in what you do and having the confidence that actually what you believe in is what you want to achieve and it kind of trying to, I guess, push those things to the side and not allow them to take over so that you can actually continue on your path forward. You were talking about how you wanted to um, take the approach that people have traditionally had with meat and sort of look at that from a sort of plant-based or, you know, vegetable perspective. How did you go about that? I think for me it was looking at what the classic techniques were that I had learnt throughout my time in traditional kitchens or kind of classic kitchens and thinking about how to then apply that to a vegetable and I think one of the big things that people sometimes forget is or or don't even put the same amount of effort into and I I always give the analogy that you wouldn't steam a steak 
and eat mm. it because it would be disgusting. <laughs> but we think nothing of steaming cauliflower yep. and just serving it as is, especially as children. so true. Yeah. I've never so, thought about that. But yet when That's you roast a cauliflower, it is so delicious, mm. so nutty. Oh, the best. Exactly. And so same with the steak. Yeah. It is delicious when you cook it in the right way. And I think sometimes the approach to also time, people put a lot of time and money into meat and fish and not they don't have that same level of approach or same approach to it that they do with vegetables. You know, they don't kind of source out their celeriac for their Sunday roast. <laughs> but I think that... It's coming. I think it is coming. Yeah. I think it will come. Um, but I think just even a level of consciousness of what, you know, how delicious you can make a celeriac or yep. polka. And I think one of the biggest ones is caramelization. Mm. And it's obviously a scientific mild mm. reaction that yep. you get that with a steak or meat. And it's exactly the same with vegetables. Um, and I think if you, I used to make this soup at the Savoy Grill, which was a celeriac soup, and it had to be perfectly white. Like you could not have an ounce of color mm. on it. Mm. And by the time you've tasted this, you know, 10 times a day for kind of a month in a row, <laughs> yeah. you really do not like that anymore. And then it got to a point, I think, once I was making some, I thought, actually, I'm just going to see what happens if I do. This is not Savoy, obviously. Yeah. Um, this is much later on. If I actually put some real colour into it. And mm. honestly, the transformation was amazing. I think you do see that with a lot of the... I guess white beige vegetables. Yeah, that a bit of time, heat, and fat yeah. can transform it. I'm completely obsessed with roasting vegetables. I mean, it's just yes, laugh- it's just laughable, isn't <laughs> it? Is it? Laughable. So, so when, when we do <laughs> our summer clubs, anything it's like I'm ro- I'm roasting everything, <laughs> and then that's my base. <laughs> that's like your your protein base in a way. Yeah, yeah so definitely. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it does it yeah. just transforms the flavour hugely. It really does. And same thing if you look at meat and fish in terms of, you know, there's some raw meat that you would never eat. So, again, some raw, some vegetables raw on their own, they're not going to taste great. No, So it's almost what true. can you, again, it's putting that or removing that expectation that they should taste good without anything else. Some of them do, yeah. but some of them also need yeah. even just seasoning. Always season your cooking at the very beginning because then it goes transports itself through everything mm. versus when you season at the end it's only ever going to be on the outside yeah that's really good and advice. that's something that really yeah i always bang on to my chefs about yeah have you, seasoned it? have you seasoned it uh, because if you even if you're caramelizing onions or cooking roasting cauliflower if you don't season it at the beginning you're only ever going to get surface level seasoning and actually when you yeah. eat you need that with each mouthful I love that. Speaking of recipes, which one is your favourite from your book, Planted? Well, actually, it's well, the one that Nikki brought up earlier, probably, which is the peanut butter because pudding. It's amazing. Oh, which good. was one that I. Yeah, so it's, it's a um, peanut butter pudding with peanut caramel and dark chocolate sorbet. Mm. <laughs> and so, yeah, we had it on the menu at Tree Bells for quite some time. And we didn't actually, I think it was on the main menu, we didn't actually say that it was a plant-based recipe mm. um, and people just kind of adored it. But yeah. peanut butter and chocolate, like you can't really oh, you can't go wrong, can you? And something that's gooey. I mean, I like gooey puddings yeah. and yeah. obviously with the the kind of chocolates, dark chocolates always cuts through the yeah. sweetness. So you that that dessert will stay with me forever. <laughs> ah. That's just the best. So I think that probably is one of my one of my favourites. Nice. Yeah, I've also noticed for me that I feel like people don't taste their food very much. That's another big one, actually. Yeah. When as 
always taste what you're cooking yeah. because, and that's a big one, you know, in restaurants. And as I mentioned, the celeriac soup, that's why I kind of <laughs> really sick of it because I was tasting it all the time. And, but little things can make a huge difference. And if it's even just adding a tiny bit of acidity to something can yep. totally transform. And also I think as chefs, we sometimes, or I know a lot of people, they'll, they'll have a bite of something and think it's okay. But unless you have that whole dish, by the by the time you get to the end of that last mouthful, mm. if things are, if it's too cloying, if yep. it's too, there's something that's too much, you don't necessarily understand that. So yeah, it's almost about experience. understanding the whole eating process as well as the whole cooking process. Do you have any food obsessions, Chantal? Um, I have a few of them. They yep. also go through, you know, different time periods. I have different mm. obsessions. Um, one of my current obsessions is cavage. I love cavage. I love cavage too. Um, I really, <laughs> I really love cavage. Yeah. Even my chefs in my kitchen will be able to yeah. uh, attest to that, how much I do love cabbage. I also, I think, yeah, once I get kind of hooked on wanting to know more about certain mm. ingredients, in terms of an actual obsession, there's certain guilty pleasures I have. Tell all. Well, they're not oh. really, particularly. But one of my favourite combos is salt and vinegar crisps and champagne. Um, they've got to be tyrrells. We should have salt and vinegar. Some for you today. Oh. Only tyrrells. Oh. Yeah. Or oh, actually, pickled onion mon- monster munch, dare I say. <laughs> that's your claggy. <laughs> no, see, that with gin and tonic, though. What, do you think that sort of cleanses your palate? Well, I think snack, pair- <laughs> snack and aperitif pairings are really yeah. important. Yeah, that is very important. We've got some olives here. Yeah. See, olives, yeah, olives are really good with gin and tonic as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That is true. What would, what would you pair hummus with? Hummus is probably actually a nice lager or mm. something with a little bit of... Um, Fruitiness in it, an albarino or mm. a Pinot Gris from New Zealand, of course. Um, yeah, that's probably, I think I could probably write a book on snack and aperitif oh, pairing. There we go. Oh, that's um, the next one. Maybe, maybe it is. Bettina, have you got any food obsessions? Have I got any food obsessions? Yeah. Um, I go through periods of obsessing over things. Um, avocados. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> Was my thing yeah. for quite a while. And actually, I've paused. I've paused the avocado now. I don't eat as much of them. But I used to live yeah. in Spain and I used to get given bags. Yeah, I used to, ones, yeah, yeah, I used to get given bags of avocados. And that's how it all started yeah. of sort of incorporating them into everything. And it, and it, do you think, do you feel like the avocado helped your um, social media growth? <laughs> I think so. Yes, everybody else became obsessed with them as well. Yeah. yeah. On that point, though, do you think, I often think this from certain food experiences I've had, that unless you have something that is at its absolute peak, you may that may dictate your thoughts on that particular ingredient, such as avocado. Yeah. So if you've had a really ripe, delicious avocado mm. in Spain, your yes. versus a hard avocado mm. in somewhere in the UK or in New Zealand, you don't like them. And I think it's interesting. Yeah, I was talking to someone, true. actually one of the other chefs that's in the Chef's Manifesto, and she was telling me that she used to really detest tomatoes because the only tomato she'd ever eaten with kind of the hard, unripe, really... Watery, tasteless yes. ones, yes. Mm. And I have that same thought process with, obviously I've had the privilege of being able to pluck sun-kissed, sun-ripened stone fruit straight mm. off the tree. And my uncle's apricots, I swear, I've never had another one like it. Mm. And I think people's perception of what an apricot, a little tiny, pale, 
squash ball style yeah. thing <laughs> is actually really sad and mm. I think you don't necessarily understand what an apricot yeah. is until you've had one of those apricots. And also we live in the UK and there are so many amazing seasonal fruits and veggies here that I don't think enough of us take yes. the opportunity to kohlrabi. make use of. I love kohlrabi. Kohlrabi, well. swede, cabbage, apples. Yeah, you like swede. I know. I like sweet. I'm yeah, going to make sweet a thing not, because people... I'm sure about sweet. <laughs> sweet is good. When you have a good sweet, it's good. Marrow. Mm. Marrow. I mean, that is something that you can totally treat as a flesh, in my opinion. And, you know, you've had my stuffed marrow. That was very good. <laughs> Nikki. Yeah, me, made me reassess the marrow. Yeah, that's a yeah. good one. Reassess the marrow. Yeah. Mm. There we go. And so, yeah, I think more of us in the UK should eat seasonally and locally. And... I am 100% sure if you really take the time and effort to um, research, you will find a farm shop somewhere close to you, especially but, if you live on the countryside. But that's well. why I'm a, a massive advocate of having a seasonal organic veg box because yeah, it's definitely. just easy yeah. and, you know, amazing veggies can be delivered to you. Yeah, definitely. And, and, just it's, taking, and it's seasonal. So, yeah, just taking you know, the time to yeah. do that research. Uh, my parents-in-law have this amazing um, farm shop that they haven't known about <laughs> for the last 30 years of where oh, they wow. lived yeah. and now go to it all the time. It's literally 10 minutes down the road. So I think a lot of us have those opportunities. What would be, to round things off, what would be your top three tips on bettering our food system or what can I do as a consumer? There is many, many things. But I think, as I mentioned previously, every little bit counts. And I think... If you have the approach that, or the thought process that it's all too big and it's too much to kind of even fathom, then if everybody has that approach, then we won't make any changes at all. Yeah. So it's it's all those little things that can happen. I think it's very much about time and place and what works for you. I think yeah. if you try and embark on something that's completely out of your way, time-consuming, your family don't like you know, they don't like, enjoy eating whatever mm. it is you're doing, then it's not going to work. So I think it's about making, taking steps that are practical, feasible, convenient and work for you. And that's not the same for everybody. You know, people that live in London, it's very different than someone that lives in Birmingham from someone that lives in Kent. So Definitely. I think it's about not beating yourself up too much about it as well and, and just taking little steps that you can. I think one of my biggest things with food waste, and I'll probably, I don't know if this is controversial or not, is used by best before dates. Yes. I think they Smell are and taste horrendous. it before. Yeah. I Don't have taste some, it in the supermarket. I have some creme no. fresh. <laughs> I have some little secret. I have some creme fresh in my fridge, which is mm. over a month past <gasps> it, and it's still fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a big one. Is And I was even, I did a little masterclass with some, some people yesterday about food waste, and one of them was like, as soon as it, that date hits, I throw it away. I was like, you... People are very seriously, scared. Seriously, can you just, yeah. like... If you have a tiny little quarter of a teaspoon of whatever yeah. that is, it's not going to do anything bad to you. Mm. If it is bad, fine. Just yeah. just get rid of it. But there's also lots of ways of, of using, you know, if it's old milk, you can make some ricotta. You can. There's ways and means of doing things. And I think sometimes it's just about my number one tip would just be be more conscious about mm. your actions and your choices. And instead of just your your automatic default reaction being... That's past. It's best by date. I'm going to get rid of it. Mm. Just stop and yeah. you know, just pause for a minute. And if you then make that decision, okay, fine. But at least 
eventually yeah. you'll get into the mindset of, of not doing that and hopefully wasting a lot less of what's in your fridge. I, I think, again, I think that's maybe a generational thing. For example, my mum, she would never automatically throw something away. You know, she would always taste it. She'd get that absolutely fine. Absolutely. You know, or she'd yeah. reuse it in something else. Mm. And that's just how she's been brought up and her, she would, you know, she automatically mm. does that. But then I think that, you know, sort of younger people are a bit scared somehow. Well, I think that also cost and convenience has come into it. Whereas before, you know, with the war, etc., rationing, it was you had to appreciate everything you had because you actually didn't get that much of it. Whereas now, I think food's too cheap. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, you I can totally buy things agree. really cheaply. And actually, it's like, well, actually, I'm only throwing 50p in the bin. I don't really, you know, what's that going to impact on my, yeah. my bank balance? Whereas I think that slightly needs to be flipped and saying, well, actually... Yeah, it's maybe not going to impact my bank balance so much, but how is it going to impact the planet, the world, and have that thought process as opposed to it just being more convenient and quick to get rid of it? Mm. Yeah, being more mindful. Absolutely. Yeah, and I and I completely agree, just having that appreciation that all these little things can yeah. have a big impact, can't they? Well, look at the plastic bag phenomenon. I mean, that was yeah. literally overnight. And yeah. you think, how did they do that? 5p, yeah. that's yeah. all it was. Yeah. And that put people off so much. And it's made such a huge impact so quickly yep. that why can't we do that with other things as well? Definitely. We need to. Yeah. Thank you so much, Chantal. You've been an amazing guest. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having me. So where can we come and visit you? Come and visit me at Treadwells, which is in the heart of Covent Garden, Seven Dials. Um, plant-based menus as well. Got our Consider Eat menu, which is all about food waste at the moment. Oh, amazing. So, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Please come and say hi. Thank you to our amazing sponsor, the organic retailer Abel and Cole. And please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and give us a five star rating. Please don't forget that Abel and Cole have given us an exclusive offer for you, which is £10 off your first three shops when you spend over £30. All the T's and C's are online and on the website, which is abelandcole.co.uk. And we'll be back soon. Hold up. 